Hello, and welcome to No Time for Caution, a podcast about Interstellar. I'm your host, Andy. I'm the curator of QuantifiableConnection.com, which itself is the quantification of my love for this film. Each episode, we discuss a new interstellar topic with unflinching sincerity and a heavy dose of humor. I guess you could call this a miniature episode. There's no guest this week, but I wanted to share some reflections as Interstellar turns one. I started Quantifiable Connection and this podcast, No Time for Caution, because I wanted to connect with a community larger than my daily circle about a piece of art that deeply moved me. I can honestly tell you that uh, setting aside people, and definitely dogs, and potentially other living beings, nothing has ever meant more to me than Interstellar. In the first episode, Tim and I talked about my love of Bruce Springsteen, the boss. I've seen him 27 times in concert. He's just a phenomenal, very soulful live performer. And so being at a Bruce show has always kind of been like church for me. And consequently, I couldn't have imagined anything ever surpassing that feeling. But seeing Interstellar on a massive screen in a dark theater, it was kind of like an out-of-body experience, as I think I've said before. I truly felt that on some level I was transcending place and time. (laughs) I told someone that the other day. And they said I was describing an LSD high. But, um, I can't imagine a psychotropic drug ever matching the impact of Interstellar. Uh, I haven't been active with the site or with the podcast recently because of a confluence of work and life obligations, and so I apologize for that. What I can assure you is that my passion for Interstellar is undiminished. In fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago... I organized a viewing with a couple of friends uh, on a big screen projector with these THX speakers, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, Probably the best viewing I've had since the movie hit Blu-ray. We had to pause it about hmm, seven or eight times so that I could explain the science behind what was happening. But my friends were into it. Or if they weren't into it, they were at least happy to see me happy because I have a huge, dumb grin on my face whenever I watch this movie. So what's that dumb grin all about? Why is it still plastered on my face well over a year after Interstellar hit theaters? The past few years have been challenging for me, and I say that not to elicit sympathy or pity, because we all have very difficult situations in our personal lives, but I've had some personal turmoil dealing with uh, death, relationships, and some severe workaholic tendencies that I'm still struggling to overcome. So I guess at times I felt like I was a ghost, peering through my own bookshelf at the events of my own life. Except there was no way to send a message, because uh, if I could have, I would have said go, not stay. But, uh, uh, so, you know, we all move on up the road and do the best we can, but I wasn't in a great place in my life. And then I saw Interstellar. And I saw it again and again, and people started to ask questions, like, haven't you already seen that movie five, six, seven, eight, nine times? (laughs) When people uh, ask for the total, 
uh, I usually respond, what is a really unreasonable number of times to see a movie in the theater? The highest number they'll ever guess is 10, and then they look at me like I'm a maniac when I finally give them the real number. But uh, I'm not embarrassed about it. Uh, I guess I just try to explain why. All right, so let's do it. Let's get into it. Why? Uh, A friend of mine said something uh, after we watched it that was interesting to me. She said that Interstellar is predictive of human behavior. And I think that's true. I think, like John Steinbeck's East of Eden, Interstellar is a meditation on good and evil and how they define the human potential. In Interstellar, uh, our Earth is used up, and the man charged with saving it, uh, Professor Brand, betrays his humanity for what he perceives as something greater, the persistence of the species. Uh, And of course, on some level, it's uh, eminently logical. You can understand his reasoning, where he's coming from. Dr. Mann's actions are far more difficult to equivocate to excuse. He represents human impulse taken to its very worst extreme. He twists the human survival instinct into something truly ugly. He essentially puts the fate of the human race at risk because he, as an individual, is too afraid to die. Dr. Mann is a prism, a funhouse mirror that reflects the worst parts of all of us. Because we're all capable of doing what he did. I think to believe otherwise is naive. I know uh, I look back on some points in my life when I acted completely uh, out of self-interest. And uh, and really, that's the genesis of regret when we think of ourselves before others. Uh, but So I don't think we can dismiss uh, Dr. Mann as an aberration. I think what he represents in this movie is very, very real. But you know what else is real? People helping people. Interstellar is hardly dour in tone. Despite Brands and Mann's horrific acts, uh, as well as the apparent death of our planet, Interstellar is actually bursting with optimism. And I think a lot of that comes from its portrayal of man's pioneering spirit. This was driven home in a lot of the advertising for the film, I believe the tagline was Mankind's Next Step Will Be His Greatest. In narration for one of the early trailers, Cooper says, Our destiny lies above us. Uh, And that really comes across in the film. Cooper and Brand regard the universe with wonder, the same as we all would. Uh, And that probably comes through most clearly in the scene when they're traveling through the wormhole. What is that? Hey, it's them. Distorting space-time. Don't! Don't! was that? First handshake. I imagine that uh, what Cooper and Brand feel, and that we as an audience vicariously feel through watching them on the screen, 
uh, is probably similar to how my parents must have felt when we landed on the moon. Uh, just the first time, because apparently by Apollo 13, we were all jaded to the whole thing, if Ron Howard's motion picture is to be believed. <laughs> it's really just amazing to me that we could ever grow accustomed to such a monumental achievement. Uh, the idea that a human being landing on another planetary body is, eh, yesterday's news. That's crazy to me. Uh, we're talking about going back to the moon now, I guess, uh, as kind of a dry run for Mars. Uh, and if we do that, well, let me tell you what's gonna happen. Here's the plan. I'm gonna go down to Costco. I'm a gold member. I'm gonna buy a 70-pack of the Kirkland generic brand of 5-Hour Energy, I'm going to go home, I'm going to crack open the box, drink eh, 20, 25 of them. Then I'm going to go to uh, the CVS pharmacy, I'm going to buy some button hooks, peel my eyes open, and watch the live stream 24-7. I'm going to watch them when they're, uh, when they're training, when they're doing those uh, laps in the pool. I'm going to watch them uh, taking off with their faces sucked back against the seats. I'm going to watch them float through space. Do some zero-G walking, I'm going to watch him loop around the moon, land, pick up some rocks, come home, and crash into the Pacific Ocean, and I'm going to enjoy the entire thing. I just, uh, I, I can't imagine uh, ever growing numb to a human being landing on another planetary body. That's just crazy. Especially since... I mean, are, are you telling me you really weren't impressed by this in 1971? I mean, we, we hadn't even invented Siri yet. Boy, can you imagine if Siri had uh, accidentally gone off when they were landing? That's uh, one small step for man. One. I'm sorry, Neil. I don't understand one small step. God damn it, Siri. I wasn't talking to you. Okay, here's today's weather. There is no weather in a vacuum. <laughs> Anyway, moving on. Um, uh, Interstellar portrays the indefatigable human spirit, and I think the largest part of that spirit is love. Because without love, what are we? We're just uh, machines wandering through lifetimes of meaningless computations. Because when shit hits the fan, what do we turn to? What do we lean on? When we lose our jobs, our money, when our dreams go unfulfilled, when we experience serious physical or emotional trauma, love remains. The love of a father, the love of a mother, the love between siblings, the love between husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, or boyfriend and boyfriend, hell, even the love of a dog or a cat or a childhood idol. Love is the one thing we all share in common. It's the common thread of all human experience. Yet none of us understand it. Not truly. Scientists speculate that love is a series of chemical responses, neurological responses. Basically, they say love is a fancy name for routine or familiarity. I don't believe that. I've never believed that, and... I am quite certain that I never will believe that. And that faith in love as something greater, something cosmic, is the core of Interstellar. 
And if you're Christopher Nolan, that's actually a pretty risky proposition. It's far safer these days to shroud your script in irony and grit. Too often these days, we dismiss the heartfelt as maudlin. People roll their eyes at displays of emotion. And so, to see a film full-throatedly endorse the cosmic significance of our ties to one another, I guess that just meant a lot to me. When I was a kid, I used to spend my summers with my grandparents in North Carolina. They lived in a small town, uh, the type you'd find in an old movie where there's uh, one general store and people seem to know each other. And everything about it, I can remember vividly. Their house, uh, which was nestled in the mountains, had a kind of magic about it. Even right now, I can picture my grandfather on the deck feeding birdseed to the squirrels. And I can picture decorative plates with painted-on golden retrievers. And I remember my grandfather's laugh and my own laugh, and how we brought them out of each other. It's a running joke in my family that I don't seem to have a lot in common with my parents, or even my siblings for that matter, the kind of thing where uh, maybe an unscrupulous businessman had a layover dropped by the house, that kind of thing. But my grandfather was a kindred spirit. We could talk about nothing, and yet... Somehow, it was everything. I loved him so, so much. And when I lost him in 2013, I can't explain how it felt. But I don't think I need to, because we all share that experience of loss. So, there are two scenes in Interstellar uh, through which I connect with the memory, or maybe more accurately, the essence of my grandfather. And so I'd like to play them and then talk about them. The first is the scene in the Tesseract when Cooper finally realizes why he's there. I thought they chose me. They didn't choose me, they chose her. For what, Cooper? To save the world. All of this is one little girl's bedroom. Every moment. It's infinitely complex. They have access to infinite time and space, but they're not bound by anything. They can't find a specific place in time. They can't communicate. That's why I'm here. I'm going to find a way to tell Murph, just like I found this moment. How? The love, Tars, love. It's just like Brand said. My connection with Murph, it is quantifiable. It's the key. What are we here to do? Find out, tell her. The watch. The watch. That's it. We code the data into the movement of the second hand. Translate the data into Morse and feed it to me. Translating data to Morse. Cooper, what if she never came back for it? She will. 
monologue for me is really the linchpin of the whole movie. More than any other quote, more than any other scene, these are the words that come to mind when I think about Interstellar. The film's most important question is answered in this scene. What is love? My connection with Murph, he says, it is quantifiable. It's the key. It doesn't matter uh, where you come from or what your background is or your religious inclination, whether you're a Christian or a Jew or a Jew for Jesus or a Muslim, whether you're atheist, Buddhist, Hindu, or maybe you just find your peace through Bikram Yoga, love is the binding force of all human experience. I've always known that it meant something. I've never accepted that it's a, a product of evolution. It's not some writer in a social contract we didn't make it up just to get through the day. It's quantifiable. I've known people who purport to see apparitions of loved ones who've passed on, and I think I believe them, because I've at least felt people before, their presence, including when I watched Interstellar. As Cooper floats through that, that corridor of moments, I feel deeply connected to everything and everyone. At times, I've felt my grandfather, and my friends, and my aunt, and my dog. You can call that wishful thinking, or, or the, uh, the manifesting of memory. But I think it's like Bran said, love is an artifact of a higher dimension, and we perceive it always. Or maybe that's just the Popeyes I had earlier and I need to take a Tums 50-50 chance. <laughs> uh, so the other scene that I wanted to talk about is Cooper and Murph's reunion. This is one of the most beautiful uh, shots in the movie, that, that slow zoom on Cooper uh, as he enters the room. It's just a phenomenal scene. You told him I like farming. <laughs> it was me, Murph. How is your ghost? I know. People didn't believe me. They thought that I was doing it all myself. But I knew who it was. Nobody believed me, but I knew you'd come back. How? Because my dad promised me. I have 
have my kids here for me now. You go. In an earlier draft of Nolan's screenplay, uh, and I think it was actually a Jonathan Nolan draft, Cooper travels far further into the future, and so instead of reuniting with Murph, he meets her descendants. And boy, what a tragic misstep that would have been. It would have been a completely unfulfilling, unsatisfying ending. The film doesn't work without that moment that perfect moment when father and daughter say goodbye. I can't imagine, I can't fathom the love of a parent for a child, though I want very, very badly to know it. But I think watching this scene, maybe I experienced uh, a very small sliver of it. Matthew McConaughey's delicacy here is truly remarkable. It's unforgettable the way he shuts his eyes after, because my dad promised. But I experienced something else watching this scene, too, something far bigger than a sliver. In my grandfather's last days, I sat at his bedside. He was uh, in and out of lucidity. He'd, uh, he'd, he'd mime daily routines, He'd move his hands like he was uh, feeding the squirrels. I guess in a sense, he was a time traveler. He was uh, reliving everything he loved. My grandfather was the most positive person I've ever met. He didn't remember arguments. He didn't remember the war or open-heart surgery. His past was a film reel cut to project only good. I was with him for a few days in the hospital, but then work came calling. Two days after I got back, I found out he was near the end. But the night before he passed, he came out of the fog. He was coherent and, and responsive. And so... That night, my mother called me, and she put the phone up to his ear, and I told him that I loved him, that I loved him forever, and he whispered, Goodbye, Andy. I'll miss you. What a tragic misstep it would have been not to have that moment. Our story doesn't work without that moment. Love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends dimensions of time and space. And I trust that, even if I can't understand it yet. Mm -hmm. 